Again, Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 to 16. This is God's word. Listen carefully to it. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be, cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may, they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Let us pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this portion of your word this morning. And we ask, O Lord, that you would indeed teach us, that you would conform us, that you would make us into the image and the likeness of your precious Son. Teach us what it means, O Lord, for us to be salt and for us to be light in the world. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Salt and light. This phrase has become so common in Christian parlance and Christian language and Christian interaction as we talk to one another that it has almost achieved a status of cliché. We use it so often that it's very rarely given any sort of explanation. You just know what it means to be salt and light. Don't you? Salt and light. Well, salt has gotten a little bit of a bad rap in the press lately. I don't know if you've noticed this. There are lots of reports now about how bad salt is for you. There are reports that are saying if people across this country would just cut down, cut out 10% of their salt intake, that a massive amount of money could be saved uh, in terms of health care. Salt is bad, is what we're being told. Well, the underlying reason why people's intake of salt is too high is the simple fact that, the simple fact that it tastes so good, doesn't it? It's not an acquired taste. How many of you have witnessed your children, upon the first time that they experience, they encounter salt on, their, on a meal, on a dish, they want more of it. They lick their finger and wipe it through the salt because it tastes so good. It has an addictive quality to it. And they will eat as much as their parents allow. But if recent reports of the ill effects of salt negatively color our thinking about it, We'll forget that for the vast majority of the world's population, for the vast majority of the history of the world, they have regarded salt very positively. They have looked upon it with favor. It is considered a commodity. It is is, uh, an expensive item. Light. For those of us who are fair-skinned, sunshine represents a threat. You can't go outside without lathering up in sunscreen. You can't go outside without putting garments on you and hats and coverings to avoid the bad effects of light. And so we live in fear, many of us, of skin cancer. And we've seen those. We've had loved ones who have suffered with various forms of skin cancer. And so we might forget 
That light is actually good. <laughs> and that for the vast majority of the history of the world, for the vast majority of the population of the world, light is a good thing. And sunshine is something to be celebrated and enjoyed. We might forget the great benefits that light from the sun, from candles, from lamps, that they, be, they bring us. Now we've just finished a series of sermons on the blessings that Jesus pronounced upon the citizens of his kingdom. His blessings or beatitudes concluded with a blessing upon those who are persecuted because of Jesus' account. As his disciples, you and I, we're expected to be out in the mix. We're expected to be a part of the earth, a part of the world. We're supposed to be seeking to bring peace between a holy God and sinful people by calling them to repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we talked about last week, <clears throat> this will inevitably bring to you, if you're willing to engage in this, you will bring persecution upon yourself. Not for your own sake, <clears throat> but only in as much as you're faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ. But this persecution that you bring down upon yourselves... This is an indication, your indication, that you are being salt and light in the world. Here's what I would ask you to think about as we consider this passage this morning. Disciples who are faithful to Jesus, citizens of the kingdom who are faithful to Jesus, are as useful to the world as salt on food or a light set up as a beacon in the darkness. Again, disciples... Citizens of the kingdom who are faithful to Jesus are as useful to the world as salt is on food. We're as useful to the world as light, which has been set up as a beacon in the darkness. <clears throat> well, I've taken this very brief passage and I've divided it simply into two sections. The salt of the earth, verse 13, and the light of the world, verses 14 to 16. Again, the salt of the earth, verse 13. In the light of the world, verses 14 to 16. <clears throat> to those who will be persecuted because of their faith in Jesus and their faithfulness to him, Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. But Jesus is preaching <clears throat> to both the small group of his disciples whom he called to follow him, Peter and James and John and all the rest. But he's also preaching to these large crowds of people who had decided to follow him because of these amazing and miraculous healings that he had done, because of the teaching that he was carrying out, the preaching that he was doing. They were following him from this wide region that surrounded Galilee and Jerusalem. They were following him because of his fame and because it had spread so quickly and widely. Jesus wants those who truly follow him to know that they are the salt of the earth. And while we may have negative associations with salt in our day, you might have been put on a, a, on a salt-restricted diet. We need to remember that human beings cannot live without salt. God has created us in such a way that we cannot live without it. We need it. It has many benefits for us, and it was recognized in Jesus' day as a basic necessity for life. What is it about salt? <clears throat> Why would Jesus say, you are the salt of the earth? What is it about it? Well, it has a distinct flavor, doesn't it? If salt is in a dish that you're eating, you know it, you recognize it. It has a distinct 
taste that is unlike anything else, any other flavoring or spice that you add. Salt has the ability to make bad tasting food taste better, if not downright good. It is savory. It is is enjoyable to eat. So it has has a flavor that that we like. But what's more, salt has been used as a food preservative for thousands of years. Refrigeration has only come into, to, into being in the last century. How did they preserve food? They had various methods, but using salt was one of the primary means by which people preserved foods. As long as the proper amount of salt is used, salt-cured meats can last for months at hot temperatures in less than ideal conditions. And salt was certainly used to preserve food long before Jesus came to the earth. Well, in addition to food preservation, though, the Hebrews had a special place for salt in their lives. It was based on the commandments of God in the Old Testament. They were to use salt for purification. God said through Moses in Genesis chapter 30, verse 35, that, that he and the people were to make incense blended as by the perfumer, seasoned with salt, pure, and holy. In 2 Kings chapter 2, verses 19 to 22, the Lord purifies a spring of water inside the city of Jericho when the prophet Elijah, he takes a bunch of salt and he throws it in the water. And the Lord uses that to purify the water. Now there's something miraculous that takes place there. It's not just the salt that does it. The, the scripture is very clear there that the Lord did this. And yet salt was associated with it. But salt was also an integral part of the Old Testament sacrificial system. Leviticus chapter 2 verse 13 says, You shall season all of your grain offerings with salt. You shall not let the salt of the covenant with your God be missing from your grain offering. With all your offerings you shall offer salt. The salt of the covenant. There's something about salt. It becomes a part of the covenant. A part of the sacrificial system. So when Jesus told his disciples that they were the salt of the earth, they would have known that he expected them to be of great benefit to the people around them, just as salt was a great benefit to those who ate it. They were to be of a great benefit to people around them. And so Jesus expects you and he expects me to be salt. He expects us to be savory. He expects us to be in the mix with other people. Salt preserves the more it's mixed in. If you salt cure meat, you've got to let it soak into the meat to prohibit the growth of bacteria. He wants us to be savory. He wants us to speak winsomely about our faith in Jesus Christ to others. Our lives should attract other people, sinful human beings, to Jesus. And speaking of this preservative effect again, we should be involved in, in the world to help prevent decay and corruption. We should be seen by other people, by those who don't even name the name of Christ as, a, as being a benefit to the world. They should look at us. They should see us as ones who are full of honor and integrity, reliable, trustworthy. We should be counted upon by our co-workers who don't know Jesus because we live a life that is so glorifying to him. And 
But there's one other effect that salt has on people. Salt makes us thirsty. How many of you, when you've had a very salty meal, a, 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 a meat pizza full of sausage and ham, and how many of you are driven or compelled to find a glass of water? Salt makes you thirsty. Compels you to seek out something to drink. When people don't, who don't know Christ are around us, they should be compelled, they should be drawn to springs of living water. They should seek out Jesus Christ because they've been made thirsty by the saltiness of our lives. Well, Paul says in Colossians chapter 4, verse 6, Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. <clears throat> Now, if you look at the surrounding context of this verse, you will see it's clear that Paul is talking about God's Word here. He himself is talking about speaking, using God's Word. And then he says to his, his listeners, he says to those who receive this letter, let your speech be seasoned with salt. We should know God's Word to the extent that it seasons our language, that it becomes a part of how we speak. This does not mean that we speak in some sort of technical jargon that people have no idea what we're saying. But it means that our words should be liberally seasoned with God's word. That we speak as God speaks. So that when we speak, people hear God's word in our own. Well, in our passage, Jesus goes on to say, but if salt has lost its taste... How shall its saltiness be restored? Much has been written, much has been said about how salt can lose its taste, how it can lose its saltiness. And many of you are asking, many of you are looking back, those of you who are a little older, you're, you're thinking back to your high school science classes, you're trying to remember, can salt lose its taste? Can it lose its flavor? And the answer, to put it simply, is No. Pure salt cannot lose its flavor. So what is Jesus saying here? Was Jesus wrong? Was he primitive? Did he not understand modern science that's been able to determine that sodium, uh, 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 sodium chloride cannot lose its distinct flavor? No. Jesus is speaking hypothetically here. True salt does not lose its flavor. True salt goes against its nature not to taste salty. If salt does not taste salty, it is not true salt. If salt can lose its flavor, it is not true salt. Jesus is saying here that it is preposterous to think that salt could lose its flavor. And this is something that is known by ancient people, by, by Hebrew people. They understood this. In the same way, he's saying that if you are his true disciple, it would be preposterous to think that you would not behave as his disciple. If you truly believe, you will truly behave. Well, what becomes of this hypothetical salt that has lost its saltiness? This untrue salt, this impure salt? Well, Jesus says in the second half of verse 13, it is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. 
This is speaking of the false disciple. This is speaking of the person who has attached himself to the Lord Jesus Christ, but is not true. And Jesus understands that in his audience there are true disciples and there are false disciples. And so I ask you this morning, which are you? Are you the true disciple who can never lose the salty taste that you have? Or are you the untrue disciple who will be cast out and thrown underfoot? This is speaking of God's judgment. And his judgment upon those who do not believe in the Lord Jesus is never pleasant. That is why we are commanded as believers in Christ, as disciples, as citizens of God's kingdom to be salt. Because we do not wish for those who don't know Jesus Christ to undergo God's wrath. This is why we must not be afraid to talk to others about our faith in Jesus Christ. Well, let's look now at verses 14 to 16. The light of the world. Jesus' true disciples are the salt of the earth. And in verse 14, he also says of these true disciples, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot remain hidden. Now, in the previous chapter, in verse 16, Matthew quoted Isaiah 42, verse 7, where he says, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. Matthew says that this prophecy of great light dawning was fulfilled. And when was it fulfilled? It was fulfilled when Jesus came and he began to preach and teach around Capernaum and around that region. That's when Jesus fulfilled this particular prophecy. Jesus, you see, is the son of righteousness, as Malachi chapter 4 verse 2 says. He rises with healing on his wings. He comes as the dawn. And he heals the souls of people who are wounded and broken. He is the great light that has dawned. And he says so himself in John chapter 8, verse 12. He says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus is the light of the world. You are the light of the world. Is he contradicting himself here? Is it either or? Or is it both and? Well, in our passage, Jesus is saying that those who follow him no longer walk in the darkness. We are no longer in the valley of the shadow of death. We have seen a great light. The Apostle Paul, in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 8, says, For at one time you, you were darkness. But now you are light in the Lord. And then what does he say? He tells you what you are. And then he tells you what you must do. He says, walk as children of the light. All of Jesus' disciples once walked in darkness. We were darkness itself. But the light of Jesus has dawned upon us. The light of Jesus has shone in our hearts and our minds. We have seen him for who he is. 
He has shined his light into those dark corners, the dark recesses of our hearts, those places that we do not want him to see as sinful people. And now, because his light has dawned, we are the light of the world. We are the light of the world. Jesus has gone. He has ascended. He no longer walks the earth as he did. We are the light of the world. But our light, it must be remembered, is derivative. It is dependent upon the sun of righteousness. Now the ultimate source of energy for light that shines from a candle, from a fire, for an oil or an oil lamp is the sun. That's the ultimate source of that energy. For example, the energy that is released in the form of heat and light when you burn firewood was stored up in that wood through the process of, of, of photosynthesis. When the tree absorbs sunlight, stores it as energy. The ultimate source of the light that shines from you as a Christian is Jesus, the Son of Righteousness. And we absorb His light, not through leaves, we absorb His light through the Word of God. As we read it, as we store it up in our hearts, as we cause it and allow it to transform our minds. We absorb His light. And in turn, we radiate His light to everyone who's around us. To everyone who, in God's providence, He brings us in contact with. You are the light of the world. And just as a city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, so your light cannot be hidden. It's impossible to hide a city which is set on a hill, especially in ancient days. They didn't have blackout curtains. And builders in ancient days, if they wanted a city to be seen, if they wanted to put a city on a hill, they intended for it to be seen. If they didn't want it to be seen, they would build it in a valley. People in Jesus' day did not have the ability to get a bird's eye view. They couldn't look down on the earth through an airplane window. They didn't have Google Earth to, to see what was below them. So a city in a valley would remain relatively well hidden. If that was the goal of those who built it. But if the goal of the builders was for that city to be seen, they would put it on a hill. Rome was built on a hill. Jerusalem was built on a hill. Certain builders, certain nations wish for their cities to be seen. Jesus is saying that it would be preposterous to build a city on a hill and not want it to be seen. To try to hide it. It's preposterous. It makes no sense. It goes against reason. His disciples are cities on a hill. Our light in the darkness is expected to be seen from a great distance. A city on a hill is a beacon to someone searching for civilization. If you're approaching a city on a hill at night, you will see it from a great distance. And Jesus further illustrates the pointlessness of trying to hide light in verse 15. He says, nor do people uh, light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. What is the point of lighting a lamp and putting it under a basket? There is no point. It's pointless. Now in Jesus' day, houses consisted of one room. And so in order to, to light up the room at night, they would take a lamp and they would put it on a, on a stand, on a pedestal in the middle of the room, and it would have the ability to cast light throughout the room. The point of a lamp is to illuminate, to hide it, 
makes no sense. By its light, we can see our surroundings. We can see where we are going with a lamp. But Psalm 119 verse 105 says this. It says, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Your word is the lamp. And so just as God's word is the salt that seasons our speech, it is also the revelation of the light which shines through us. God's word, as we absorb it, radiates from us and illuminates those around us. And that light not only gives illumination for us, it does help us to see, but it helps others to see as well. Well, Jesus says in verse 16, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Let others see your light so they may see your good works. Does that make you nervous? There he goes, he's talking about good works. What does that mean? Later on in the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 23, verse 5, Jesus will condemn the good works of the Pharisees. He says, they do their, all their deeds to be seen by others. Is Jesus contradicting himself when he says that? No. The Pharisees do their works to receive glory themselves. Jesus' true disciples, you and I, we do good works so that God will receive the glory. We're constantly pointing to God. We take no credit to ourselves. We receive no glory for ourselves. If someone falls down to try to worship us, we act, we behave in a way that Paul or Peter does. No, do not do this thing. We are men just like you. We point to God. That is how we shine. We are salt and we are light. By saying these things, Jesus intends for us to be a great benefit to the world. He does not call upon us as Christians to group together, to huddle, to be protectionistic, to hide from the world. He sends us out. He sends us out as his disciples. He sends us out to make disciples of every nation. He calls upon us to be in the mix. He calls upon us to shine, to shine a light that is reflective of his glory. We are the world's chief seasoning. We add flavor, to be sure, but we should also preserve from decay. And by all means, we should make people thirst for Jesus Christ. We also light up the world. We enable people to see what is around them. We help people to get around the obstacles in their path. We help them to stay on the right path. We're also beacons. We draw sinners to the risen Lord. We are visible to the world. And so when people see what we do, it should result in them worshiping God. Our desire is that sinful people will come to the Lord Jesus Christ and they will fall down on their face and worship Him because He is their Savior. That is our desire. But you can only be salt and light if you are true disciples of the Lord. If you do not know Christ, then you still dwell in darkness. 
You are darkness, the Bible says. You live in the valley of the shadow of death. And your life is one of fear. You are dead in your trespasses and sins if you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ. But there is good news. There is good news. That is not the end of the story. Jesus will give you life if you call upon him. The Bible says all who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. It's simple, really, what you're required to do. The Bible says repent of your sins and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. None comes to the Father but by Him. Without Jesus, you have no hope. But with Jesus, you have every hope. You have the hope of eternity. Eternal life before your Heavenly Father. Jesus alone can quench your thirst. Jesus alone is the gate through which you enter the city on a hill. And if you don't know Jesus... It's simple what you must do. Repent and believe. Repent of your sins. Confess them to him. Believe that the Lord Jesus is the Christ. Do this and Jesus Christ, the light of the world, will live in you and shine through you and you will know peace. You will know love. And you will have joy everlasting. And everyone who sees you will give praise to your Father who is in heaven. Let us pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we are truly thankful to you for your mercy to us. We are thankful that you have shown your light upon us. We are thankful, O Lord, that you have seasoned our hearts and our minds with the salt of your word. And that you have called us to humble repentance and faith. And so we pray, dear Lord, that you even as you have called us salt and light, that you would make us salt and light. That you would push us into the world so that we would be faithful witnesses to you. We thank you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.